and get to grips with a bit of numbers this morning, would you give us a humble and contrite spirit, please? We don't simply want to come and understand how numbers works or its structure or interesting facts about it, but we long that you might speak through it to us and that as we hear your voice, we would be transformed. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. There are just two verses, Numbers 1 and verses 1 and 2, page 133. The Lord spoke to Moses in the tent of meeting in the desert of Sinai on the first day of the second month of the second year after the Israelites came out of Egypt. He said, take a census of the whole Israelite community by their clans and families listing every man by name, one by one. It seems to me the, um, the Christian faith is, is very often more complicated than usually people give it credit for. So on my travels, I chat to folk, and often the simple version that people reject, who, who wouldn't call themselves Christians, often when you dig a bit deeper, it seems, isn't actually very near to being what the Christian faith is actually about. Maybe they've, they've picked up some ideas from down the years, some thoughts and some snippets, and maybe a, an RE lesson at school or conversation with a friend or a family member, maybe a strange man in a white suit as you sort of flick through the obscure satellite TV channels or maybe someone shouting at them from the streets in town. And they've popped all these ideas into the oven and out comes a cake, but, but maybe it's not actually the cake. There might be aspects of truth in it, sure, but it's a kind of mix and match. It's, it's wonky and muddled and perhaps reduced to simplistic sound bites. A couple of examples of relevance to us as we think about numbers. On the one hand, take the idea or the concept of God. Talk to people who say they, they don't believe in God and... Ask them what that God is like, and it turns out you don't actually believe in that God either. That's not quite the God of the Bible. Maybe it depends who you're talking to. Maybe some of them say, well, he's just a grumpy God. He's a, he's a head teacher who's always looking for you to slip up, always looking for you to get stuff wrong. And apparently that's because we've got guilt issues from our past. Or, or alternatively, he's the perfect parent. He's the the perfect parent that we project and we dream about and all wish we had. Apparently we've got daddy issues. But you see, the picture of the Bible of God is, is so much more complicated than that. It's, it's far less able to sit comfortably in our, in our simplistic categories. Sound bites don't really cut it. So there's thinking about God. What about thinking about what it means to, to be a believer in this God, one who follows him very Often, again, the message that's proclaimed, the, the example that's parodied, are from people who say that, well, the Christian life is simply about getting God to give you what you want. If you do the right stuff, then God is the vending machine, and you put the money in, and you press the right buttons, and, uh, and out comes what you want, the goodies. It's, he's painted as a way of getting the stuff and the success and the victory that we we all seek to accomplish. It's sort of Western consumerism was a thinly disguised God veneer. And we look at the proponents of people who say that kind of stuff and we think, really? 
Because the world looks pretty broken to me, and I reckon if I were to get behind your closed doors, I would see that you're pretty broken as well. Your life is probably pretty messy. And again, in reality, the Christian life is far more complicated than that. The, the pop theology of what God is like, the pop theology of what it means to follow him just don't really match with reality, which is why we're spending some time in numbers over these next few weeks, in large part because it's a black hole for Christians. Some sniggers, there. that's probably right. It's just a book that we're not familiar with. We kind of avoid it. But also, and especially because I think it gives us in glorious technicolor, a picture of who God really is, of what he's really like, and, and also of what it really means to follow him. It does away with our simplistic sound bites. We'll see his kindness and his patience and his goodness. We'll, we'll see his purity as well, though. We'll see his justice. We'll see that he will discipline his own people. And he will mould them and he will shape them. But secondly as well, we'll see something of what it means to follow him. We'll see that they are not together, and they are not sorted, and they are not victorious. We'll see their messiness, their hard-heartedness, their fickleness, their disobedience. It'll be a graphic image of what it means to follow him. No rose-tinted specks from the writer of Numbers, probably Moses. Painfully up-close, personal, frankly a bit awkward. It's very authentic. But lest we point the finger and tut at them too quickly, it's a mirror as well. It's a mirror on us. It shows the kind of struggles that we have, the kind of things that we do. And so we hope this will be a useful series over the next seven or eight weeks. If you are just here visiting, and particularly Perhaps for the Williams' Thanksgiving, you're trying us out, you've been invited along, a very warm welcome. It is a bit of an unusual one for you to get two verses at the start of an obscure Old Testament book. And we're going to try and sort of fly over the book as well to get some bearings. So stick with us. And it's been my prayer this week that God would indeed speak to you through it as well. Whoever you are, whatever your background, wherever you stand in this thing. But let's dive in. Have a look down again at Numbers chapter 1. I'm going to read those two verses again, just because they were pretty quick the first time, weren't they? Numbers chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. And what we'll see as we go through is that each little phrase is loaded. As is often the case in Bible books, the first few verses set the agenda for the rest of the book. Let me read again. The Lord spoke to Moses in the tent of meeting in the desert of Sinai, on the first day of the second month of the second year after the Israelites came out of Egypt. And he said, take a census of the whole Israelite community by their clans and their families, listing every man by name, one by one. So the two things then I want us to see this morning as we both dig down into these verses, but also in doing that try and fly high over the entire book, is see two things on the screen. We'll see a people who haven't arrived but we'll also see a God with them on the journey. So a people who haven't arrived. Now as we start the book of Numbers, it's really important to, to grasp that we don't really start at the beginning. In fact, grammatically I'm told, the Hebrew for 1 verse 1 really begins mid-sentence, which isn't an error, as I understand it. It means we're meant to look back to the previous verb. 
which means we're meant to look back to the previous sentence, which means we're meant to look back to the previous book, because this is a continuation of what's come beforehand. And what's come beforehand? Well, friends, the Bible is not a random collection of writings. There is a big picture, a progression for us to follow. There's an overarching narrative, a plan that God has. And perhaps to try and give us some just initial bearings or as a reminder, forgive my oversimplicity, but let's try and track the story so far in the Bible. And we'll start right back at the beginning in the garden. However we understand those, those first three particularly chapters in Genesis, we see God's people enjoying him and enjoying the good gifts that he's given them. They're enjoying creation, they're enjoying each other, and it's all good and all is well. Until. Until they say they would rather go it alone, they would rather live without him. Thank you very much indeed. And so they stop listening. And in comes sin and rebellion and judgment. And when you walk out on the God of life, then in comes death. And before we know it, the world breaks and there are wars and the pages turn and strife, discord, murder, death. And what started as a dream turns into a nightmare. But in the midst of the nightmare, there are these little beautiful glimpses of hope. Maybe the main defining hope and of relevance to us this morning is, is from a promise that God makes to a man called Abraham. And he says in this promise, Abraham, from you will come a huge people. And you will have a land. And your people will bless the entire earth. And as we'll see as we go through numbers, that promise to Abraham actually shapes quite a lot of the book, sets something of the agenda of what we find. Fast forward from the promise to Abraham and we find God's people have grown in number. They are swarming, they are huge, but they're in the wrong place. They're in Egypt, they're not in the land that God has promised them and they're away from home. It started off good, but then it got very bad and they're crying out to God. And he comes and rescues them through Moses and leads them from Egypt through the Red Sea to Sinai. And there we get the Ten Commandments. And then, so verse 1 of Numbers chapter 1, have a look down. The time is given to us of where this account fits in. You can plot it on a calendar. It's the first day of the second month of the second year after they left Egypt. Which means it's about a year later. They've been camped around Sinai for that time. This, this is a story of a traveling people, a nomadic people, on their way to the land that God has promised. And here's a slightly technical bit. As, as the book develops, we'll essentially, splot, we'll essentially spot an alternation in the text. It, it, it switches back and forth. You get teaching and you get traveling. Teaching, traveling. There are three major chunks of teaching. Forgive my... Not very good diagram. You probably can't see it either. The three major chunks of teaching, you see where the telephone receiver is. And then you get the two journeys in between. So there's the first teaching chunk where the book begins, Exodus 19 through to about Numbers 10. First 10 chapters or so of Numbers. And then there's a journey to a place called Kadesh. 
And then a second sort of law-giving happens in chapter 13 through to 19. And then a second journey. And then there's a third teaching as well on the plains of Moab at the end of the book, from 22 through to 36. Three, if you like, major teaching chunks within the book. And two journeys in between them. And that's one way you can split it up. It clearly works. Um, Another is to highlight the two generations mentioned in Numbers. It's, in a sense, it's a book of two uneven halves. This is vital. You get two censuses outlined for us in the text. That's why the book in our Bible is called Numbers, Numbers of People. 1 verse 2, do you see there's a census commanded? Accounting of all the men of military age. It turns out that this first generation, first half of the book-ish, Numbers 1 through to 25, is a generation of unbelief, a generation who, who don't trust God. But the second half of the book, chapters 26 onwards, is a second census, a second generation, and they're a generation who, who do believe, who do trust God. And with the first generation, they, they reach the edge of the land that God has promised to them. And they get there. The land promised to Abraham is right in front of them, and they bottle it. They see the inhabitants, they see their size, they see their numbers, they see all that needs to be done, and, and they see these things simply through their natural eyes, and they don't trust in God's promises. They, they forget him. They forget what he's promised them. They forget all he's done for them. But then it's remarkable, you, you reach the sort of second half of the book-ish, chapters 26 onwards, and we reach this slightly weird story about Zelophehad's daughters. And suddenly from out of the blue, there's this family in the limelight, and we're, they're basically nobodies, and they're appealing for an inheritance, and then they reappear again in chapter 36 at the end of the book. And we're scratching our heads thinking, what is it about these daughters? Who is Zelophehad? Was he... Mates with Moses? Maybe he, he asked to get his daughter's names in there. What's going on? How did they get their names in the book? Why are we zooming in on this family? And you see, here's the thing. It's because they represent a people of faith. They, they represent the second generation in numbers. The second census. They've not entered the land yet. They're not home yet, but they are deeply concerned with the inheritance that God has promised them. And so these daughters are there as a contrast to the first generation who, who didn't trust God. They didn't believe his promises. They, they bottled it. So it's a book of two halves, two generations, the first who don't trust, the second who do. But it's worth being honest as well as we work our way through the book over the next few weeks. And I say this reverently, there's, there's something very frustrating about numbers they essentially end pretty much where they begin. The book both starts and ends in the wilderness. Indeed, one of the, the Hebrew um, names for the book, 1 verse 1, comes from in the wilderness. It, it began on the brink of the promised land, the desert. It ends on the brink of the promised land. It feels frustrating. Was it worth it, really? But it's not a mistake. It's not an error on the part of the author. It's his skill as the author because the shape of the overall book is part of the message of the overall book. 
which I think means there's something very authentic about it, something very real. It's, in one sense, it's the real life of a believer played out, lived out. There's no deception, no masks, no pretending, no saying it's easy, it's, it feels hard, it's refreshingly genuine. We can relate to it. Which means as we work our way through, it's a comfort because we see people like us in there, people who get it wrong, people who make the same mistakes again and again and again, people who are experts at grumbling, but people who, who have a God who is committed to his promises. There's a comfort there, but there's a challenge too because frankly at times you see how he disciplines his people and, and it's painful. I think we'll see that the parallels between, between them and their frustration and us in ours are very close. There are people on a journey. There are people living as sometimes we put it between the now and the not yet. They, they live between salvation accomplished and they live between salvation consummated. It, it's been accomplished. They've been rescued from Egypt. They know God as their God. He's formed a people for himself. They've seen his power and his might and his kindness and provision, but they're not there yet. They're not home. Their salvation has not been consummated, finished. They've not arrived in the promised land. Which if you're a Christian here this morning begins to ring bells, I take it, because we're a people who live again in between salvation accomplished and consummated. We live this side of the cross. Christian, you have been freed and rescued and redeemed as the people have been. But you're waiting for that time when salvation will be consummated when Christ returns, when you'll be truly home. There's a tension. There's an awkwardness. There's no photoshopping. There's not a highlights reel. This wouldn't work on Instagram. This is messy. And it's pretty gritty. It is pretty gritty. It, I wonder if you're somebody who ever despairs. Maybe you despair that life is all going nowhere and you just feel like you're back here again and you promise you never would be, but is it just random? What is happening? Who am I? What's going on? Or maybe despair because you think you're on your own in all of this and where is God in the mess of my life, really? Is he here? Friends, if that's you, if, if that's the kind of despair that sometimes you can sink into, I think Numbers is a book for people like you, people like me. Because you see, we're a people who haven't arrived, but we will see a God with them on the journey. And Numbers shouts loudly to us, don't despair, you, it is not random. You have a God who is leading you. And Numbers shouts to us, don't despair, you are not alone, you have a God who is with you. And those two things at times can be very hard for us to believe. When life is really hard, when we feel that life is out of control, when we feel that prayers are just bouncing off the ceiling, at the heart of the book we see a God who is with them, a relational God who dwells in their midst, who's with his people. Have a look down with me, verse 1. See how it all begins. The Lord speaks to them. He's not unknowable. 
He's not distant. He's not far off. He speaks. It's actually a key thread, again, that runs right through the book. Again and again and again, the Lord spoke from 1 verse 1 through to 36, 13. I think 150 times that concept comes up in, in 20 different ways, over 20 different ways. God speaks. Again, it's another name for the book in some Hebrew Bibles. And, and the Lord spoke. Numbers is claiming, here is a trustworthy message of the living Lord who made the heavens and the earth, who made a promise to Abraham, who made a people for himself, who rescued his people from Egypt. And he's speaking to his servant Moses, who is speaking to the Lord's people. And how that pans out for us is the Lord is knowable. The claim of the Bible is we don't imagine him or make him up or have to pretend that he's there. He's not distant and far off and removed. He, he speaks. And whilst other gods may be silent or mute or a-relational or, or non-responsive, what the God of the Bible desires more than anything else is for a people to hear his voice and joyfully trust and obey him. Of course, that's our prayer for the Williamses, little Anwen, that they would be a family who love to hear his voice and who joyfully trust and obey him. In Numbers, that voice comes through the mediator Moses. For us, this side of the cross of Jesus, it is through his perfect and revealed and final living words. His mess, the message from God and his word that we have in our hands about him on our laps. It's a word that knows us, that cuts us open, that examines our motives and our priorities, that peers into our hearts, into the darkest recesses of our hearts. But a word that speaks of his incredible grace and his kindness, his patience. His word with us on the journey, in the now, and the not yet. And so read it not because, not because you think you have to, not because you feel you must, not because you're looking to earn favour with God in some way, but because it's, he's a God who speaks. It will help us get to know him better. And he loves to speak. Sometimes we say, if, if you're somebody who doesn't own a Bible and would like one, Take the one with you on your seat. We would love for you to have that if you'll read it. It's our gift to you. But as we go through Numbers, we'll see this God who speaks. The central idea of God speaking is closely intertwined with this place of God speaking. It's almost the place where God is. It has different names. Sometimes it's called the tabernacle. Sometimes it's called the tent of meeting. Sometimes it's the the tabernacle of the testimony. And why different names? I'm not sure I completely know, but maybe they highlight different emphases for us and what the writer is trying to get out in different places. Maybe the tent of meeting speaks as of a place of revelation, of communication. It's where meetings happen. It's where Moses meets with the Lord. Maybe the tabernacle highlights something of the portability of what's going on. It's God with his people as they move, as they travel. Maybe the tabernacle of the testimony, that third one, maybe that's something to do with the covenant, 
all kinds of symbols of the presence of the Lord among his people in there, guaranteeing his ongoing friendship and relationship. And what's striking, though, is you, as you read of this mediator Moses, this tabernacle, if what's particularly striking for me comes in chapters 2 and 3, and we'll see something of, of the geography of the camp, both as they, as they settle and as they're, they're still, but as they travel and they move. Now, I studied geography at university, so maybe you think I just get excited about geography, but what is exciting for me is it's all outlined by God. He gives the blueprints, but here's the thing. The tent of the Lord is right at the heart of the camp, right in the centre, in the centre of the 12 tribes, that they're placed all around it. It's situated at the very heart of the community of God's people. But not just spatially. It's, it's to be at the heart of their daily lives. It's socially, spiritually, God is at the heart of their community. Not just a little add-on, not a footnote, but he is real and involved and utterly foundational to all that they do. Because he's a God who is knowable. He's not meant to be an afterthought for people. He's meant to be at the heart of our lives. And again, as you go through Numbers, you see this worked out. It's a very dynamic relationship that the people have with God as they, as they travel, when they're moving, when he tells them to where he tells them to. Not on their own initiative, not on their own ideas, but as they hear his voice. There's a real sense in which he will protect them and provide for them as they travel, if they will only listen. You see it because he, he gives them food and he gives them water, miraculously at times, if only they would listen. There's a dynamic daily obedience, which I find quite challenging. He says, trust me and obey me, and I will give you what you need for life. It doesn't take much imagination for us to see, again, something of the parallels for a people like us. It were very different people, very different contexts. Most of us don't live in tents. But, but in a sense, very similar to the people here. Maybe go back to those two temptations for despair that we thought of. The first despair is, is life just going nowhere? Is it all random? Am I going around and around in circles? Or, or the despair that says, I'm on my own in all of this. Is God real? Well, I think broadly speaking, we, we often get into those dips, that despairing time like the numbers generation because we fail to live by faith. And we forget, and we forget who we are, and we forget where we're going, and we forget the story of which we are a part, and we forget that we are not our own, and we forget where he is taking us, and we forget him, and so we despair. And we say, am I just going round and round in circles? And they're great questions to ask, and I'm sure there will be different specifics and contexts and situations to talk through. But from Numbers, one of the things we can't get away from is that God is the one who directs our paths. And part of what it means to live by faith, particularly maybe in those dark times, is to trust God's path. 
that in his sovereignty we're here at this point now for a reason. But so easily we forget that he is the one who guides our paths. I suspect it's why the reality of heaven is, makes such a little difference to most Christians nowadays. We've forgotten the story. We've forgotten we're on a journey. We've, we think we're at home. We've forgotten that we are part of an Exodus community. That salvation has been accomplished, but we're on our way to the promised land and we're not there yet. But he's leading us. And when we despair, am I on my own in all this? Are my prayers really just bouncing off the ceiling? Where is God in the mess of my life? Has he forgotten me? Well, again, part of what it means to live by faith is to remember his presence in the midst of us. By his spirit. The fact that we follow a God who speaks to us, who's not silent. We can hear his voice through his word. We, we're to seek him daily, to listen to him daily. Do you know, as you fast forward a few centuries from the book of Numbers, it's no accident that one of the eyewitnesses of Jesus, a man called John, who writes a biography, starts his gospel with this very weird little phrase in John chapter 1 and verse 14. It's literally, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. You think, what? Is that even a word? I'm not sure it was. But what he's saying is, where do you meet with God now? You don't meet with God in a tent of meeting or a tabernacle. You meet with God in a person. And he's a person who is with you. That, that is the unashamed claim of the Christian faith, that if you want to meet God now, you go to Jesus. You go to the word who became flesh. And he's the Jesus who, when he finished his work of salvation on the cross, sends us out and says, surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. We're a people who don't need to despair. And Numbers, I think we'll see, is authentic and real and gritty and frustrating and a bit awkward as we see what the people of God are like. But it's a mirror for us because that's us. We're a people who have a way to go. We're a people with messy, broken lives. We're a people who can easily feel like it's all a bit random and I'm not quite sure how I've got here again or a people who can feel, am I on my own in all of this? We're a people who haven't arrived, but we have a God who is with us on the journey. And he's with us every step of the way. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we, we confess to you our brokenness and our messiness and how easily and how often we try and project an image that is not true. We thank you that you know us, you know the reality of our hearts. And we thank you for the image that we see of your people in the book of Numbers. We, we see the their brokenness and their rebellion. 
they're slow to learn, that they're great at grumbling. And yet we thank you that you are faithful and committed to your promises. And so we thank you that you are a God who is with them and with us on the journey. Our Father, if we're those who do despair, who feel like it's all random and life is meaningless and and we're just not quite sure how we've got here or what's going on, or we're a people who feel like we're on our own and, and that you're not there and not listening, soften our hearts, please, so that we might learn the message of numbers. That you are a God who is with us on the journey. And we thank you for the Lord Jesus. Thank you that the word became flesh and tabernacled among his people. And thank you that we have his spirit, your Holy Spirit, in us now. Thank you that you surely are with us to the very end of the age. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.